Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at AntiochChurch.org. Thanks for listening. got a Bible, let's go to the book of Mark, chapter 1. And uh, we're going to continue on in our Advent series, looking at the peculiar character of John the Baptist. And uh, John the Baptist is really the personification of the season of Advent. He embodies the idea of waiting, of preparing, of anticipating, which is what the season of Advent is all about. So we join with millions of Christians all around the world this morning on this third Sunday of Advent as we anticipate the celebration of God's arrival in the world through Christ. And John the Baptist uh, is a character that helps us enter into that story in a significant way. He's also a character that gives me an opportunity to tell Baptist jokes because when else do we get to? So do you know why John the Baptist didn't believe in premarital sex? Because he was afraid it might lead to dancing. (laughs) So the Baptists in the room know. Uh, John the Baptist really is an important figure in this story, and in many ways he functions as a bridge between the old era and the new era, the first chapter and the second chapter of the story of God. And in really in an interesting way, he has one foot in the Old Testament and one foot in the new. As one of God's chosen and appointed prophets, a mouthpiece of the Lord to his people, John lives half in the age of promise and half in the age of fulfillment. He's really the only character that we see in the story that lives uh, as one who is anticipating the arrival of Christ, but also gets to usher in and welcome in Christ, along with just a few others, but really the, the focal point. Um, when we come to the Gospels, which are really, uh, you could think of them as spiritual biographies of Jesus. Um, I say spiritual because the author's intent isn't to give us every little fact and detail about Jesus' story, but to simply share with us the ones that are necessary or helpful for us to understand who he is in his nature and his mission um, as, as the sent one of God. And we have four Gospels, as you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of them tell the story of Jesus from a slightly different perspective. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are known as the synoptic Gospels. They're kind of synced up. They tell a similar story from a similar perspective. The Gospel of John comes in and uh, tells the story from a different perspective. But what's interesting is that all four stories, as they begin to tell the life of Jesus, they start in different places. So the Gospel of Matthew starts the story of Jesus with this long genealogy, this long family tree that connects Jesus back to David and and Abraham and ultimately Adam, this kind of uh, really detailed, uh, specific list of ancestors. And the idea is that that the first readers of Matthew could locate the story of Jesus within this much bigger story of Israel. And so Matthew starts 
his story with a genealogy. Skip Mark for now. When we get to Luke, we get to this narrative. And it's a narrative about a prophecy. It's a narrative about angels foretelling uh, the birth of this child. And even before they foretell the birth of Christ, they foretell the birth of John the Baptist. And so Luke starts his gospel with this story that kind of builds the anticipation for Christ's arrival. John, uh, again, kind of coming from a different perspective, he starts his gospel with the beginning of the world, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so John, trying to kind of capture not just the story of Israel, but the story of all humanity, and through kind of a philosophical and theological lens, uh, wrestles with the nature and the identity of this person of Jesus that's come into the world as the Word uh, of God. Now Luke, or Mark, sorry, where we are this morning, in Mark chapter 1, he begins um, his gospel story in in a different way. And this time of year, um, as we get ready to celebrate Christmas, it's really the Gospels of Matthew and Luke that get the most play. They're the stories that have uh, the angels and the shepherds and Mary and Joseph and the manger and the wise men and all that kind of stuff. And we'll spend time uh, in those Gospel accounts when we get into the Christmas season. Um, But Mark doesn't start there. There are no mangers or stables or anything like that. But again, uh, he starts with this interesting character uh, of John the Baptist. And this is how he begins his spiritual biography of Jesus. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. So Mark's original readers would have immediately been captivated by this familiar language of somebody who begins their account with the words, the beginning, the beginning. To a Hebrew audience, what other book begins with these words? The beginning. The book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. And so what Mark is doing is immediately signaling to his readers, both his first readers and us today, that this story of Jesus, this story about John the Baptist and this gospel is not this story that just kind of shows up in the world out of nowhere, but he's connecting this story to a much larger story. The story of God and his people that's been going uh, for, for a really, really long time. And so he's making a parallel here that there's a beginning of God's creation of the world and then there's the beginning of this gospel or this good news story. Um, in Genesis, we have simply God referred to as God. And in Mark, we have God referred to as Jesus, the Messiah. And then from there, starting in verse 2, he goes in to these ancient Hebrew prophecies. As it's written in, the, in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight the paths for him. This is a mashup of two different prophets, the prophet Malachi and the prophet Isaiah, that the author Mark puts together and signals his readers that again, this story isn't just starting out of nowhere, but this is connected to a much, much larger story. There was this promise that the Israelites, the Jewish people, had been banking on for hundreds of years now, that God himself prepare the way for the Lord, make straight the paths for him, that God himself was going to return to his people 
who had been held captive under the oppression of the Roman Empire, that God was going to return to Israel and his people could live with a hopeful expectation and anticipation that one day the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, would come for his people. And the prophecy was that the way you will know that God himself has shown up in your world is that he's going to send a messenger before him. There's going to come one that's going to prepare the way, this voice calling in the wilderness or the desert, the one who's going to be a foreshadowing or even a type of the one who is to come. And as we talked about last week, that one who would prepare the way is this crazy cousin of Jesus's, John the Baptist. And so John prepares the way by kind of signaling to God's people, get ready. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus, he didn't know his name was Jesus yet, but the Messiah, the sent one, is on the way. Prepare yourselves. Repent. Turn from your old way of being and living and believing and turn into a new kingdom people. Now, what I want to do this morning is help us see a little bit more clearly how this story is connected to the larger story because according to all Four of these gospel writers, John the Baptist plays an, a really important and essential role in un, helping us understand the significance of the Jesus story or what John, Mark here calls the gospel. And so I want to pay attention to this bigger story and then we'll connect the, the bigger story back to the story of Mark and then finally connect that story to our lives. Three stories, if you will. Uh, I want to go way back to the book of Joshua. And um, if you, uh, I'll catch you up just really quickly that God's people had been slaves in Egypt, we know. And then uh, God sent a deliverer by the name of Moses, one of his people, to lead his people out of slavery into Egypt. And the journey that God led his people on under the leadership of Moses was that they would leave Egypt and then they would miraculously cross through the Red Sea. Now we know that story well from Pharaoh Pharaoh and other Baptist songs that we grew up with, right? I just, it comes, it just comes out of me. Um, and eventually they find this whole nation, several million Israelites are able, God spares their life and paves the way for them to cross out of Egypt, out of slavery, um, through the Red Sea, and they end up on the other side. But what's important to know in the story is that it's not like the nation of Israel crosses through the Red Sea and on the other side they're immediately in the promised land. The story goes that they cross from Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness where they spend 40 years wandering around. And so they're out of slavery, they're out of Egypt, but they're not yet in Canaan, they're not yet in the promised land. And the story of Exodus and Deuteronomy again tells this long period of time as God's people wander around in the desert. And then at the beginning of the book of Joshua, here's what we see. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord 
uh, uh, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses said, Moses, my servant is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set foot as I promised Moses. Moving on, your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west and no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Okay, we'll pause there for a moment and hopefully you begin to understand something of the connection here. And so God had come and had delivered his enslaved people out of Egypt and he had miraculously made a way for them to cross safely through the Red Sea to the other side. But on the other side wasn't the promised land, wasn't their ultimate destiny, wasn't the fulfillment of God's biggest and truest promise and hope for them. On the other side was this wilderness awaiting them. But they lived with this hope and expectation that just as God showed up the first time and led us through the Red Sea into the wilderness, we believe that one day God's going to show up again and lead us out of the wilderness into the promised land. And so this theme of Advent, this theme of living between the comings of Christ, goes way, way back in the story. This picture of God's people as a people in waiting, a people in longing, a people who can look backwards and celebrate God's faithfulness and presence in our world in the past, but a people who also are looking forward and anticipating God's arrival and presence in our world in the future. And we see God's people spending a significant amount of time in between in this space of wilderness, between Egypt and Canaan, between slavery and the promised land, between death and life, this weird middle spot that's often depicted as the wilderness or as the desert. And then when we get to the end of Deuteronomy and the beginning of Joshua, after Moses has led his people wandering through the desert for these 40 years, God raises up this guy Joshua as the successor to Moses and says, you will be the one that I will use to lead my people out of the wilderness and into the promised land. The same way I use Moses to lead my people out of Egypt and into the wilderness, out of the wilderness, and into the promised land. And that's the picture. Now, let me show you a map real quick to help get us oriented and uh, see how well you can see it. Can you read those little numbers in the black circles? Evan, can you read those? Or you can? All right. Um, this is probably really similar to the route that the uh, Israelites would have taken. You have Egypt over here on the left, where they were up at the top, um, at circle one is kind of where they had been enslaved for 400 years. They make this journey away from Pharaoh as Pharaoh's army is chasing them down to number three there. And you can see at that point, the narrow part of the Red Sea is where we think that that miracle occurred. That they crossed over the sea, that God closed up the sea on the other side, and then they arrived 
in this Sinai Peninsula in the wilderness. And then you can follow them, kind of points four (laughs) through uh, 14 is that 40 years of wandering around. Now, ultimately, the promised land is way up there in the top right corner where you see Jerusalem. That is the land of land of Canaan, the holy land that God had prepared for his people, but it takes a while for them to get there. Now, some interesting things happen. We won't rehash the whole story, but down here at Mount Sinai uh, in Circle 8, we know a significant moment where God reveals himself to his people. He gives them the law. This kind of, uh, this story continues to move forward and forward. I don't quite know what they were doing on the 12 circle, but it seemed like they were uh, doing something and then changed their mind. Um, I'm sure that's in the story somewhere. Um, But what we're told at the end of Deuteronomy in the beginning of Joshua is that it's way up there at Mount Nebo in the top right in the land of Moab where Moses dies. Now first we'll just pause and consider bummer for Moses right? Like 40 years, this whole wandering journey, and he was so close, and uh, he dies right before they make it to the promised land. But what you'll notice is that where you see the Dead Sea, there's a river that goes up from there. It's the Jordan River. It flows between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. There were about, what, 25 of us that were here about six months ago, and it was an amazing place to actually visit um, and to see how this stuff is laid out. And on the right side of the Dead Sea, over by 15 and 16, that is wilderness. That's the desert. That's no man's land. And on the left side of the Jordan River is the promised land. It's the promised land. And so the story that Joshua invites us into is the very end, kind of the move from 16 to 17 and 18, that God's ultimate invitation and intervention in the liberation of his people was going to culminate with the crossing of the Jordan River. Now, this is a river crossing that doesn't get as much play. We're all familiar with the Exodus story and the story of the Red Sea. We forget oftentimes, though, that there's another crossing. So just as God led his people through the Red Sea into the wilderness to free them from slavery, he also will lead them through the Jordan River out of the wilderness into the land of their inheritance, into the promised land. And there's something really significant that's about to happen. And so I don't usually do this, but we're going to read a big chunk. And we're going to read 17 verses in Joshua chapter 3 because I want us to see this story. Because the first readers of Mark's gospel would have for sure made these connections. And we need a little help to get there. So we'll read Joshua chapter 3. I'll have it on the screen or you can turn there with me. Listen to this story. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shechem and went to, went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before." But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark and do not go near it. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. 
Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it and went, up, went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's water, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See the, Lord of the see the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the ark of the covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathon. While the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. And so the people crossed over Jericho, opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. What a fascinating story. Um, you have God... Again, miraculously paving the way for his people to cross out of the wilderness into the promised land. And the arrangement that he has with his people under the leadership of Joshua is that I want you to have the priests, the sons of Levi, the descendants of Aaron, take my Ark of Covenant, take the representation of my presence with you, and before the water stops flowing, and this is during flood season, the water is moving quickly, don't wait for the water to pile up and then cross through. I want the priests to put their feet in. I want them to move forward into this wild river. And as soon as they take those first few steps into the water, then I will cause the water to pile up and the land to turn dry. And so that's exactly what happens. That Joshua sends these priests ahead of him. And by faith, taking God at his word that he will do what he says he's going to do. They do something crazy. They risk their lives by stepping into a raging river. And God fulfills his promise and the whole nation then crosses through uh, to the other side. What an interesting picture. So then when we go back to the Gospel of Mark, we start to understand a little bit more about how Mark's first hearers would have heard this story. This story that says in the beginning of the good news, 
There was this messenger, this sent one of God. Now here's where it gets interesting. What we know from, from Luke and Matthew's account is that John the Baptist was the son of a priest by the name of Zechariah who came from the line of Levi, an ancestor of Aaron. In a very real way, John the Baptist is a modern-day Levite or a modern-day priest. And so he shows up, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's some similarities here. And then where does this story take place? Well, it takes place at the Jordan River. The, his, the spot where they now kind of commemorate Jesus' baptism, the spot that we visited uh, this spring, um, is a beautiful spot, and you can go and get baptized in the Jordan River, um, but very, very likely it's n- actually not the spot where Jesus was baptized. The spot where Jesus was most likely baptized was way upstream near Jericho at this exact spot where Joshua had led the people through the Jordan. And so here geographically, this place is loaded with significance, loaded with meaning. It is at this spot, at this river, that God delivered his people out of the wilderness and into the promised land. And it had to do with the priests stepping into the water first to prepare the way. And all of a sudden, things start to click for us. This Jordan River, this location, wilderness on one side, promised land on the other. This son of Levi, this Levite priest figure in John the Baptist, steps into the water. He's the one who's doing this ministry of baptism. And he prepares the way. And ultimately, it's this guy, we call him Jesus, but in his life, they would have called him Yeshua, which is Joshua. This new Joshua, this real Joshua, the real leader, the ultimate sent one of God appointed by Yahweh to lead his people into the promised land. So John the Baptist, like the Levites, ushers uh, this new era into being. By faith, he steps into a world that's not yet there. He steps into this river in a baptism of repentance and says, it's not me, I simply prepare the way. But after him comes Joshua, the Savior, the sent one of, of God, Jesus, the Messiah. And Jesus comes in. And this picture of John baptizing Jesus that we see uh, in the gospel accounts becomes this symbol of Israel going through the Jordan River at that exact same spot uh, many centuries earlier. And we start to see there's a picture of something so much bigger uh, going on here. There's even something interesting. uh, We won't go down this rabbit trail, but... uh, in Joshua 3 and 4, once, uh, once they go through, Joshua chooses 12 men. And those 12 men then are to each pick up a rock and to build this memorial so that Israel would never forget what it is that God had done. So to speak, he, he grabs 12 men and says, you will be the ones that pass this story down through the generations. Interesting enough, after Jesus goes through the Jordan River, 
he very soon would choose 12 men. And he would say, you will be my ones. You will be my witnesses. You will be the ones that tell my story and begin this movement that eventually uh, will cover the entire world. And so what an incredible picture. And we start to understand that the gospel writers are doing something uh, so much bigger than we ever imagined. That this story goes way, way, way back. And it helps us understand the significance of a character like John the Baptist, but it ha- also helps us understand the nature of this, what, what Mark calls this gospel. Let's go back to the map for a sec. We talked about how this was the story of Israel leaving slavery, wandering around in the wilderness, and then arriving in the promised land. In order to leave Egypt, God prepared a way for them to miraculously cross through the Red Sea. And in order to arrive in the promised land, again, he prepares a way for them to cross through the Jordan River. But that is a long, messy journey between the two crossings, isn't it? And I don't know about you, but there's times when if I'm going to try to map out the story of my life, the story of me and God, and the different times that I've been close to him, the different times where I've felt really far from him, the times where things have gone well for me, the times where things have been difficult and disappointing for me, the times where I'm doing loop number 12, right? And I don't know where the heck I am and where the heck God is. We spend the majority of our life wandering on that peninsula. And I don't mean to spiritualize this to the extent where we're no longer making this story about what it was originally about, but I just think that's the brilliance of this story, that for many of us, that crossing of the Red Sea, that freedom from sin, from death, from hell, from our slavery to ourselves, that occurs upon our conversion. That occurs when by faith we are able to receive the gift of grace that is Jesus. And some of us can trace back to that moment where we crossed out of death into life, that moment where we were saved, so to speak. Some of us know exactly when that was, when you raised your hand or prayed the prayer or walked the aisle or something like that. The most significant day of your life, whether you realize it at the time or not. Others of us, it's hard to put a date and time to it, but we can look back and go, well, I'm not in Egypt anymore. (laughs) At some point, I crossed the line of conversion. At some point, Jesus saved me and gave me a new name and a new life, and I can look at a few of those key moments And I don't know date and time when my name got written in the Lamb's Book of Life, but but it is. And and here I am, out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of a life of condemnation.
To me, it's encouraging to see that the story that God has so often led his people through isn't you cross through this one thing and then all of a sudden you're in the promised land. It's like somehow in a strange mix of God's sovereignty and our stupidity, we end up wandering the Sinai Peninsula for a significant season of our lives. Saved, yes. Christians, yes. But are we living in the promised land? Are we living the dream? Are we living in heaven on earth? Life is marked by a significant wilderness. For those of you that have been around the last couple months, I've been sharing about uh, my season that I've been in, my time away in the cabin, my time of seeking God and being disappointed. You know that our family's gone through a significant time of loss. Those are the big examples, but even when life's kind of normal, I still feel like I'm looping around most of the time. Or very best case, I get like Moses to the very edge of the, of the sea, and God says, look what's over on the other side. <laughs> Just kidding, you're going to die, right? <laughs> That's comforting to me. <laughs> And what I want to simply just say, if we haven't picked it up already, that sense of like, yeah, I'm not what I used to be. I am saved. I'm grateful for the salvation and the life that I have in Christ. But um, as that psalm that Bono wrote that we sang this morning, um, how long, oh Lord, to sing this song? How long? Like we're waiting, we're longing. Yeah, I'm not in Egypt anymore, but my heart is yet to be filled. I've yet to truly receive and walk in this like abundant life that Jesus promised. I'm not in Egypt anymore, but I just don't quite feel at home. That longing for home, that discomfort in our own skin, that sense that I'm not yet the person I should be and the world is not yet the world it should be, that is what Advent is all about. That's exactly the point of this season. Living between the Red Sea and the Jordan River living between the first and the second coming of Christ. And sometimes we even find ourselves at the edge, right up at the Jordan, with the promised land in view on the other side, only to have it taken away again. It's kind of a bummer, on one hand, to just acknowledge that every single one of us, if we're honest, we're not fulfilled. 
we still feel like there's something we lack. We still feel like there's something missing from our lives and from the world. It's a bummer to say that out loud, but the truth is, it's nice to know we're not alone in that. It's nice to know that that doesn't mean there's something wrong with me and only me. This is where we are in the story. And that discontentment we feel can actually be a holy discontentment, a faithful discontentment. It says, God, I'm thankful I'm not in Egypt anymore, but the wilderness is not my home. I was made for the promised land. I was made to dwell with you in your world forever. And that world, has I've seen it. I've seen a peak of it. I've peeked over the mountain in Christ, and I've seen life on the other side, but it's not here yet. Now, I would say, if we took the story one more level deeper, that there are moments where we cross over. There are many Jordan rivers that we step into the raging waters by faith, and we follow Jesus into the places that he's leading us, and we do experience his presence, and we do experience life with him, and those are wonderful moments, kind of mini reenactments of this story over and over, or maybe you have experienced freedom from addiction, or freedom from sin, or freedom from whatever, and you actually do feel like in that area of life you've been liberated and are living into God's best. I love those moments. Let's celebrate them and embrace them. But at the same time, in the big story, we understand that the best is still yet to come. And so the invitation of Advent, the invitation from Jesus' crazy cousin, is to live with this holy discontentment in the desert. To live acknowledging the brokenness of ourselves, the brokenness of this world. To acknowledge that things aren't yet the way they're supposed to be. And when we get beyond that initial bummer of it all, what happens is that our hearts break with compassion for a broken world. That we become those with a theology of lament and a theology of justice who say this is not the way things are supposed to be. Whenever we see Egypt popping up, we're going, that story is not the story that rules or wins the day. It gives us a theology of compassion, justice, and lament. We live as visitors from the future, promised land people who are still wandering the desert. And we live at the same time as people of hope. People who know the story's not over. That even when life has rough moments and days and years and seasons, when we're wandering loop 12 again and again and again. That whether we feel him or not, God is with us. And wherever we are on this map, that one day, one day, the ultimate Joshua will lead us through into a God's new world where we will dwell with him forever in his kingdom that never ends. So the invitation that John gives us is to follow his lead in preparing the way for the Lord.
to live into that future now in this broken world. Part of the invitation in Joshua 3, I'll close with this, is that God says, consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow I will do amazing things among you. The idea of consecrating ourselves, setting ourselves apart, devoting ourselves, making ourselves holy, so to speak, is part of what this looks like. It's part of what we do here every Sunday. This consecrated time, this holy time, this holy space to gather as a holy people. To take all the stories that are competing for our attention in the world and root ourselves again in the one true story. This is a time to consecrate ourselves. This is a table that invites us to center ourselves again in this gospel story of the true Joshua who has come into a broken humanity, into a broken world, defeated sin, death, and the devil, and has risen again on the other side of the river and is calling us home to him. Will you stand and pray with me? Lord Christ, Son of God, Jesus the Messiah, the King of Israel, the King of our lives, the one who is becoming King of this world, you alone are the one in whom we place our trust and our hope. We come here this morning acknowledging the broken places within us, within our hearts, our lives, our families, our communities, and our world. And we grieve. But at the same time, God, we grieve with hope. We grieve with a holy anticipation, a holy discontentment. That this isn't yet the way things are supposed to be. That the story is not over. That in Christ you have come you are here and you are still to come. And so we embrace this righteous awkwardness. We receive the wilderness as a gift of grace. We celebrate those small moments throughout our days and throughout our lives where we get to taste of the promised land, but ultimately our hope and the hope of the world is that, Lord Jesus, you are reconciling all things, including us. And there's a new world that's already begun. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful in the desert faithful between the advents, faithful in the season of longing and waiting and expecting. That in that faithfulness, we would be consecrated, that we would be set apart
that we would stand out in a dying world. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come to fill our hearts, to fill this place, to fill this room with your presence this morning as a foretaste of the kingdom to come, as the first fruits of the resurrection. We thank you that you aren't far off, that you aren't distant, that you aren't unknown, but that you have given yourself to us, that you are nearer than we could ever imagine, that you're closer than we could hope. Lord, open our hearts to receive your presence this morning, to live as a future people, of your coming kingdom on earth. We pledge our allegiance to Jesus and to his kingdom alone. We declare that this church, in this church, the sovereignty of Christ is unopposed. You are our king. You are our savior. You are our Lord. You are God. Come to us. You are the, ones our heart, the one our hearts long for. Meet us here this morning as we come to your table, as we respond in worship and prayer. In Jesus' name we pray.